What's up, everybody? It's the Welcome to the Show podcast brought to you by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash welcome to the show to get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. That's audibletrial.com forward slash welcome to the show. On the show today, we have Nick Francona. Nick is the son of Cleveland Indians manager Terry Francona. He was also employed by the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Mets. Nick brings a lot of knowledge in terms of the international signing practices of Major League Baseball teams. He's very insightful about Dominican leagues and, and, and baseball in general. This guy is one of the most interesting baseball people out there. And uh, we really enjoy talking to Nick. And this was one of our longer interviews. So we have decided that instead of releasing the whole thing here, what we're going to do is we're going to break the interview down into two parts. The first part of the interview delves into the life of Nick Francona, growing up the son of a big league manager and a big league player, uh, going to the Marines and serving our country, uh, being around when the Boston Red Sox broke an 86-year-old curse against the New York Yankees, uh, and more. So that'll be the first part of the interview, which you're going to listen to now. So without further ado, here is Nick Francona. What are you up to these days? What's what's going on? I'm still figuring out my next steps here. Um, got my hands in a couple different places. Uh, I'm considering law school. Should uh, should hear about that in the relatively near future. So uh, hopefully hopefully that goes well. I'm uh, doing some writing and uh, some consulting and and uh, trying to figure out what uh, what I want to do long term here. Okay. And and do you think you think you'll go you know go back into baseball at all? Or are you or is you leaving that behind at this point? Uh, you know what? It's it's. I don't have a great answer to that question. It's it's a okay. hard one for me because the. I mean, it's. It, it, I'd be lying if I said the the desire isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it was. I think I was good at it, and I think uh, people I worked with would would say that as well. I think so. And I, so there's there's a little bit of a, a bitter taste, kind of like leaving the industry the way that it, that that it happened, or it seems seems a little unfair and and uh it's a tough tough spot to be in when you feel like you can't do a job that you're you're excelling at for for reasons that you're proud of um i think realistically i mean i am where i am outside of baseball um it's not an accident i mean there's really like very real factors involved there so i think until those change um it's probably a fool's errand to uh to think that i'd be going back into baseball Mm -hmm. but uh you never know those things can change. Um, Rob Manfred uh, isn't always going to be the commissioner. Some of his cronies aren't always going to be there. We'll, we'll see how some things shake out. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So, wh- why don't we why don't we dial back a little bit? Let's rewind to the beginning, uh, Nick. So, where where are you from? Where did you grow up? I was actually born in uh, Montreal. Okay. Did not uh, did not live there long. Um, my dad was playing for the Expos at the time, so it was uh, was born up in Canada. Which funny uh-huh. uh, aside, that uh, that required quite a bit of a uh, explanation that came to the bureaucrats with the Marine Corps and getting the top secret clearance. I had to had to uh, insist that I was not going to be loyal to our friends north of the border, uh-huh. and was in fact uh, uh-huh. my loyalty existed at the United States Marine Corps. 
Um, it was pretty funny. But I uh, grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Both my parents went to U of A. So I uh, spent most of my childhood there. Um, when my dad became the manager of the Phillies, we moved to Philadelphia. And then uh, after my freshman year in, in college, we moved to Boston when, when he was up there. Okay. And uh, it's interesting. I, I didn't spend a ton of time in Boston, like obviously growing up and was at college most of the time, but sort of consider that home. I mean, my, my mom still lives there and have, have family there and, and sort of an adopted hometown. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you moved around a lot as a kid. And so are you technically not a U.S. citizen or are you a citizen now? No, no, I was born a citizen. Uh, I was born a U.S. citizen because both, both my parents were citizens. Okay, I understand. And um, and uh, I had to for I forget the exact technicalities of it. I think it was to get a top secret clearance. I had to renounce the Canadian citizenship. Mm. Nick, so uh, you moved around a lot. Is do you uh, do you root for any particular team or do you like keep that? A secret that, that's another question that i get a bunch and um i don't it, it's not that I, I i certainly like enjoy baseball and i'm a fan of it i think it's um it's hard to to root for a particular team because you end up uh like changing your loyalties so often yeah so you you, you definitely grow attached to certain people um but those you're, you're rooting for like as a kid growing up i'm rooting for my dad not to get fired yeah and be, remain employed um so certainly rooting hard for for a very specific team and a, a specific reason um and this, the same thing sort of happens when you're uh when you're working that working in baseball I, I, ne- I guess i never really had a chance to to root for like a specific like a specific team like outside of like pure like fandom yeah um let me just say this now that i think your dad is I mean, I didn't. I never got to watch your dad play, but as a manager, I personally think your dad is the greatest manager of all time. I'm a Red Sox <laughs> fan, so <laughs> that's just me. yeah. <laughs> Aren't you, wait, you got to you got to explain this to me. So, so you've got you. I've listened to a few of the shows. You've got some uh, interesting rooting loyalties that, that are probably a little conflicted there. Oh uh, yeah, but so. First of all, thank you with for your A Rod fandom and uh, and Red hey, Sox. All I can do is is you know be me, and being me is being a Red Sox fan, but also being an A Rod fan, which he would have been a, a Red Sox Red Sox member, uh, but you know how that goes. So yeah, no, yep. it's it's confusing. I'm not I'm not trying to you know justify anything. I know it's confusing, but what can I do? I don't no, know. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I'm just teasing you. I think, I think that's actually uh, a healthy thing, and is that, and, and I, I know we're kidding, but I think that's actually like at the root of what, what can make baseball grow and can what make it, make it be good is when you have people that are, are fans of teams, but can also be fans of, of players who have follow them throughout the league. I think baseball needs more of that. Yeah, and I think that'll hopefully happen to some of these young, younger stars. Yeah, I was I was definitely devastated when he signed with the Yankees in 2003. I'll never forget. I think they opened up in Japan that year, so I was definitely devastated as a kid still at the time. But yeah, I've I've grown to like players like Aaron Judge, you know, these days and stuff. But these these are special players. So yeah, it seems like baseball's headed in that direction. Like like as a Yankees fan, I find myself 
you know, I, I, when I when I realize that I'm doing it, I'll slap myself around and make sure that I, I know my loyalties. But I find myself admiring guys like J.D. Martinez and Chris Sale, Mookie Betts. And 10, 15 years ago, that would have been asinine. You know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. uh, But I think I agree with you. I think that that's good for baseball. And I think that what baseball needs to do now is kind of take advantage of that and, and let these players. I mean, maybe you can speak on that more since you did work for the Los Angeles Dodgers for for a few and for the for the New York for the New York Mets what is it about major leagues from my end it seems like they they put this wall between the fans and the players and we don't get to see you know who these players truly are like in the NBA you compare a guy like Blake Griffin to I forget who I compared him to and he has millions of more followers than say Mike Trout to me that doesn't make sense you know what I mean like like Blake Griffin's status in the NBA is not Mike is not equal to Mike Trout's status in the MLB. He should be like the biggest character out there. You know what I mean? For sure. And I think there's look. I think there's a. I think you can look at each at like individual examples and and find like reasons for for that happening in different cases. And I think uh, I think like the Blake Griffin one is probably not exactly for his basketball prowess, mm-hmm. at, at least at this point in in time. Um, but there's countless examples of that across uh, across other sports, and I think the I think in generally in general it's a true statement to say that the the uh, athletes in other sports at least got a head start in in being a lot more directly engaging, and and you see a lot of NFL players that, that do the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think on the on the player side, I think the the culture throughout the game has always been a lot more conservative and and don't don't basically like the safe route is don't say anything you can regret um think about like uh one of the good examples that i I, that stood out to me is uh remember last year when uh i think i think it was in response to uh hater started Mm -hmm. uh, the people discovered the tweets at the all-star game and then there there was a a trickle of them after that from different players and and i think it was john lester that had uh made a comment about like guys go like go delete your tweets. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like what John, John and John's a good guy. I, I love John. And, and I think what he said is very representative of kind of the prevailing attitude throughout baseball in that in, in hell for that matter, we like essentially teach the young prospects this with the, the classes that they get from the league and they're about the dangers of social media. It's basically like what can go wrong in this risk averse approach to it. Yeah. as opposed to engaging and like when you say like delete the tweets it's like you're not talking about it's like the problem is that somebody saw them not that like you said in the first place right yeah and then i think there's like on a so i think you have that general issue at, at with like the culture being pretty conservative i'd actually i don't begrudge like anyone if they not everyone is going to be like the social media guy and want to be out there like that's totally fine mm-hmm. um like my Dad, for example, is like I, I think with like I, I just heard an interview with him a, a couple of days ago where he was talking about how he never goes on social media, never checks it, and and that's like w- with somebody like that, I think it's a generational thing mm-hmm. where he is actually like pretty engaging, and I think would would if he were of a younger generation and grew up with it, would be pretty comfortable with that. Uh, but if, if it's not everybody's cup of tea, and some some people don't don't. Uh, Aren't, aren't into that and, and then i think part of the, the the thing that the the nba does really well is they allow the players personalities to come through 
Mm-hmm. And they're not all going to be the same, and, that, and that's perfectly fine, and we should embrace that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and, and I think that's that's kind of that's kind of where I'm going with this. Like Bryce, ha- mm-hmm. Bryce Harper shows a little too much passion, and we're all criticizing him one day. But by the same token, you have these ads running, let the kids play, and then you have Tim Anderson hit a walk, not hit, hit a walk off. He hit a home run and and bat flips, and and he's getting tossed at with the second, you know, on the other side. It's just like a mixed message. And I almost wish that I know that it's going to take time for for baseball to evolve and kind of catch up with the times and maybe let go of some of these old fashioned rules. But I think that if they if the, if, the, if they want the sport to survive, um, which it will survive, but I mean if they want it to maintain its popularity, which it's losing popularity rapidly, they have to do this. They have to evolve much quicker than this. For sure, and and I think if if you look at a lot of the engagement from baseball players early on, and it, it's evolved from this now, mm-hmm. but early, early, like early on, it was uh, sort of viewed, social media is viewed within the game as a, as a marketing tool, right. which I think is putting the cart before the horse a little bit. And if you look at the, the real influential people in other sports, like obviously like your on-field talent has is highly correlated to your following, mm-hmm. but, it, but there's a, there's certainly an authenticity factor there people that are going to actually be engaging like nobody just wants to see you like be pimping out like your sponsors like in every mm-hmm. single post and and mm-hmm. and just doing like the nonsense it's not fun for anybody that's not like an authentic engagement that these a lot of these platforms enable and i think the i think there are certain players that there's there's guys that are really good at that and i think the fans appreciate that and i think there's like as a result of that i think those guys will end up getting more opportunities and, and it'll it'll certainly benefit them in the long run and i think baseball just needs to embrace that a little more mm-hmm. um it, like what a, like I, i'm you know I, I i don't i don't think i watched a portland trailblazers game all year until the playoffs right I, like i every now and then i'll i'll scroll through the last couple of days and see a, a damian lillard tweet he's awesome on there mm-hmm. he's outstanding like i like i am a more of a fan of of him and that team as a result of like that engagement uh, and i i can I, I don't think I've ever watched a Trailblazers game before for the last couple of weeks. Right. Yeah. Same here. And on the baseball side, you have a guy like Noah Syndergaard who uses social media perfectly. And you can't. I guess yeah, you can't he's force. Yeah, awesome on there. He's amazing, and you can't force it. That's the thing. He doesn't force it. But mm-hmm. but I, I sometimes I feel like there's a. I don't know if you listen to this podcast. Speaking of Alex Rodriguez, and I mentioned this like a thousand times on this on this podcast, but. The 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 A Rod podcast with uh, Big Cat, <clears throat> they had Gary V on as a guest. Did yeah. you listen to that by any chance? Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that some, some, I, I didn't listen to it, but I'm familiar with Gary V. Yeah. So some of some of what they discussed on that podcast is, is exactly what I'm referring to. It, it's that you know you have a guy like Brent Porcio of Top Top Velocity using player content to help his clientele and his ki- his students or whatever you want to call them learn how to improve their pitching ability but then he gets sued by major league baseball and and also by a player in trevor bauer for for using their likeness or whatever you want to call it and it's just like wh- why you know he's 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 teaching these kids to emulate you you know what i mean he's teaching them what you're doing and it's just like I, that I, that doesn't make sense to me. Like on my end too, when I'm using an image, for example, on one of my posts, I'm looking for things that are public domain or whatever because I'm afraid that I'm going to get sued. And there's no way I can take on Major League Baseball because you hear these these horror stories. But why do people like me, for example, why do we have to be afraid of, of stuff like that? We're helping the game. We're we're well, pumping it up. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I I have not heard that specific podcast, but uh, 
I'm definitely going to go check that out. Mm-hmm. I had uh, actually had the chance to, to, uh, it was a, it was a crazy coincidence. I was, uh, I just read some comments about, uh, that Gary V had made about baseball's marketing issues last summer. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be sitting next to him on a, on a plane back to New York. We were both at the, uh, at, at there was a, I think it was a sports collectibles convention in Cleveland and he's a big sports nut. And, and I was, yes, uh, yeah. volunteering with a, a group that was raising money for veterans out there. And we started talking and, uh, about this topic and, and it was, uh, in, in the, the, the examples that you talked about specifically were mentioned and he brought up the idea that there's this, there's this desire to almost like choke out people from and he, he used the word suffocate and, and yeah. say like suffocate the environment and make it hard for people to consume their content. And that's, uh, I think there's like you cited a couple examples. I think there's, a lot bigger uh there's other symptoms of that same disease where if you mm-hmm. look at like how like one of the fan, the biggest complaints you hear from fans is how difficult it is to to just watch baseball games and mm-hmm. i can think of almost nothing more harmful for the future of the game than actively preventing fans from from watching games i mean that is uh baseball is almost like a religion and in, in that it's pa- like fandom is usually passed from from generation to generation and and that's a that's a huge asset for for the sport as a as a business. Mm-hmm. But if you're preventing people from from consuming that, and and I think it takes a it, it, to to have that mindset requires this really short sighted mentality of trying to monetize every single interaction, and not not almost taking it as an article of faith that if our sport is popular and people love baseball, there are there are innumerable ways that we can generate revenues from that. Mm-hmm. And I think when you focus on revenue as the, as the starting point, it becomes, uh, I, I fear that right now they're cutting off generations of fans. People are worried about the attendance and stuff like that. Now, I think the, the real blowback from this is going to be 10, 15 years from now. When, right now, baseball's so healthy financially mm-hmm. for all of the wrong reasons. And I think right, that's yeah. going to actually get worse once the gambling revenues come in for like, you're going to see, they're going to be making money hand over fist and people aren't going to be enjoying the sport the same. And that's going to have pretty severe consequences down the road. Hmm. Yeah. Nick, uh, I wanted to get your take on for someone that's worked at the major league level and, you know, not, not in more than one organization. What, what's your take on uh, the analytics and baseball and the way that, we as fans, we 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 look at all these managers around the league, and we don't really know where to draw the line between if this manager's doing things by his by his gut or by a piece of paper with with numbers on it. Where to go on that topic? That's a, a big one. Um, I think in general, the I, I hate the debate about uh, kind of analytics versus scouting or analytics versus the gut. I think it's uh, I think it. it creates a false premise to start. And I think the, uh, I, I think it makes things competing interests that don't inherently have to be. Um, I, and I also think that the, there's a major gap between the public narratives and what's actually happening in the sense that some, there's going to be some folks that, that talk often about analytics and, and speak that language and, can't implement them for shit and vice versa as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not every team's going to talk about it as much. A lot of like, honestly, the public debate is informed by like the, the PR and marketing elements as much as anything. And that's unfortunate. 
Um, the other thing that I, I think is an issue is I think there's uh, I saw a pretty bad trend that concerned me with, uh, and to be clear, I am massively in favor of using analytics to the highest degree possible. And I think like I would be extreme in that regard, but it's, I would define that as using any information at your disposal. And I think part of doing that effectively is understanding the, the relevancy, the value and the applicability of that information in different contexts. And I, I think one of the trends that scares me a little bit is I think you see this tendency of, of people to dive in really hard on the, they might say, okay, we can measure this part of the game with a hundred percent objectivity and accuracy. And it might be 5% of the puzzle and the rest of it we're, we're taking a swag at, but that might matter for 95% of it. And so we're just going to ignore that altogether. And you end up missing the forest for the trees a lot. And I think what, uh, I think that creates a little bit of hubris with uh, the, as much as you see the uh, it's easy to dismiss a lot of ignorance on, on some of the old school folks. And mm. I, 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 I think some of that is very real. I think there is a, a lot of like hesitancy to change for not so good reasons, but I think there's also a lot of hubris on the side of some of the analytics folks who, who where it's, it's really unwarranted. And I think if you, uh, if, if you went back 15, 20 years and were trying to tell somebody that the way a catcher receives the ball is really important and we should be evaluating them that way, you would have probably been accused of being like an old school blowhard. Mm-hmm. And now that's there, there's a point where that was like the trendiest of all analytics stuff. Right. And we've, we've kind of beat around the bush on, on this issue, but yes. So Nick Francona is the son of Terry Francona. The reason why, I'm bringing this up now at this point in the interview is because I, your father to me seems like one of these people where he's not married to analytics, but he's not married to the old school way of thinking. It seems to me like he's he's open to new things and the way he uses he used to use Andrew Miller and his bullpen. Um many people viewed that as groundbreaking in a way. You know what I mean? Is that fair to say, or do you think, or, or is somebody just barking orders at someone like your father? Like this is when, this is when you use Andrew Miller or whatever. Uh, do, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, um, and, and this topic, we discussed this topic actually a lot when we were having discussions about managerial hires with, with the Mets and, and, and afterwards. And, and to use my dad as an example is I, I think he's been fortunate in that the the two front offices he's worked with in Boston and Cleveland are both filled with a, a lot of bright, intelligent people that are, are team players and are very forward looking and, and bring a lot of different skills to the table to, to try to help the team win. Yeah. And I think there's a little bit of a paradox that, that a lot of people don't might not like understand that uh, on the surface and that, I would agree that I think my dad is particularly good at using information to, to try to put his players in the best position to win. He's also like, I don't think he ever completed a math class. I mean, that's, it's, it, he, he doesn't, none of this stuff is necessarily like a result of him sitting there, like pouring over computer printouts and writing out algorithms. It's, it, it sounds unsexy, but it's really comes down to, like like the organizational dynamics and having smart people that you trust are are pulling on the same end of the rope. 
and I think from from the other side of it, you I think it's actually there's a little bit of danger in that if a manager is just going to be a puppet of a front office or mm-hmm. the analytics advocate, I, I think you these things tend to be implemented better if and implemented like authentic uh, with some like authenticity. And and one of my colleagues had a had a great way of describing it with the Dodgers. Uh, Josh Burns talked about it being the difference between compliance and buy-in. Mm-hmm. And if the manager, if, if you're a player and the manager can't really explain something to you because he doesn't understand it or even worse, doesn't believe it and is just saying it for his own job security, but that's, mm-hmm. that's not going to end very well. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it just isn't. And so for, for these things to actually work, it, it, I think it's good to have that kind of like built in sanity check of, that works with my dad where you might have like a guy like Theo Epstein or Chris Antonetti are, are far more educated than he is in a, in a traditional like academic sense and more schooled with numbers. And there's that safety net in there. They have to explain it to my dad. And if they can convince my dad of it and, and he can take ownership of it, it it sure as hell gonna, gonna be easier for him to get the players to buy in. That makes sense. And and so, and so sticking with this topic in a way, not with this topic, but since we're discussing your father at this point, let's go back again and talk a little bit about your upbringing. Cause it's, it's, I don't think we've ever had the son of a big league manager, minor league manager, or, or someone that was involved in baseball. You were involved in baseball too, but how was it like growing up knowing that your father was a big league player? You know what? I was, uh, as a kid, like I, I was really young when he was a big league player. Okay. Um, so I, I didn't, I, I can remember a little bit of it, but I, I wasn't old enough to really go to the, like go to the clubhouse when he was, when he was playing in the big leagues or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And when, um, so a lot of my memories from that are from his time as a minor league manager, Okay. which was, uh, really cool. Like awesome. As a young kid, you're, uh, the minor leagues are a lot more relaxed and, and not, not, uh, not as much kind of uptightness that goes along with the big leagues, big league level. There's less, less people there and there's a lot more free flowing of an environment. Mm. And I used to love, I, I would go on the, the long bus trips and, and everyone would be miserable on a, on a 10, 12 hour bus ride. And I was having the time <laughs> of my life. Um, it, it, that that was a really cool experience, and we would just we lived in Tucson, and each summer we'd go to wherever he was managing. Whether it was he was in the White Sox system for for most of that, so it was Birmingham, Alabama, South Bend, Indiana. Um, it, it was a really cool time growing up as a kid, and he he didn't become a a major league. He became a major league manager when I was in uh, I think I was in sixth grade. Was uh, when we moved to Philly. That was his uh, his first big league job. I see. And then since you mentioned the Chicago thing, you posted a picture, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, of you, your dad, and Michael Jordan in the dugout. What what, the, what was that like? It, it, I think you normally have this, uh, there's a level around professional athletes where, even even minor leaguers for young kids, where there's people are get a little bit of like, like starstruck by, by professional athletes and with Michael Jordan, that's on it. He's the most famous athlete on the planet at that point. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it was an entirely different level. It was, it was pretty cool. And, uh, I think the, uh, I think the way he handled it was even as a young kid, you could tell, like I, I was, 
I was young, but I'd been around enough at that point where you could tell that everyone knew he was different. I mean, these, these are guys that are making like no money and mm-hmm. he's extraordinarily wealthy, extraordinarily famous. And he put the team first and, and managed it to, to the degree that it was possible to not, not make everything about him and to respect the work that the, the younger players put in and not detract from that. And, and he worked his ass off. And, and I, I, it, I, it kind of bothers me when I, I see people like comment somewhat derogatorily about his baseball career. Like, I think it's pretty damn impressive to, to not play baseball for as long as he did. And to double a level is, is extremely high level of baseball. Yeah. And to, to just go out and do that and, and even be remotely competitive is really impressive. It's funny that you mention his personality and stuff. I have a, a, a my wife's best friend and her husband were at a wedding and uh, they sent us a picture and they're sitting next to Michael Jordan in a lobby of a hotel. And I'm just like, what the fuck? And uh, they're like, yeah, man, he was here. We sat down with him. We talked to him for like 15, 20 minutes. He, you know, he was he was nice. He you know, humored them like, you know, and that's not what you hear about a guy like Jordan. You always hear that he's kind of a nightmare and that he's, you know, super competitive and this, this and that. But that's not Punch, that's not what I heard. <laughs> punching Steve Kerr in the face. Yeah, or whatever. I, I, I mean, he's a, is undoubtedly like it's crazy to when you're you almost take it for granted being around professional sports, like the level of competitiveness of these are all the guys that were the best at every level. And you don't you don't get like that without being competitive to start with. So to stand out in such an extreme way uh, for for your competitiveness is really saying something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think with him, like it, it's all valid, and I and I think it's actually like a very admirable trait. Yeah. Um, I don't like the guy didn't. I, I don't think he like, lied lied cheated or stilled to to get like that. He just wanted to be the best, and and that's. Right. That's pretty refreshing. Okay, so let's move on from from the Chicago White Sox and Michael Jordan a little bit and fast forward. You, the your dad's time with the Phillies. I think he spent four years as manager there. wasn't all that successful, but he ends up with the with the Boston Red Sox and you and the Red Sox break an eighty six year old curse, the curse of the Bambino. What was yes. it like in Boston? It, I feel like vomiting just talking about it, but how we was just, it? Can we, how was it? Clap? can we all just clap right now? I'm no. Gonna... Well, you two can, but I'm not going to. <laughs> well, so I, I, was a, I was a freshman in college at that point, and um, I, I, didn't really, I didn't really know what, kind of what you were getting into in, in Boston. I, I was in Philly for school, but I, I, I'd been up there the uh, – I mean, it was crazy. Just the previous fall when I, I was – going on or yeah it, probably that late that fall i was in 2003 i was going on recruiting trips and uh was at a playoff game at fenway on the other side of it when uh i, I was on a, a recruiting trip up there and and we, my dad was at the a's at the time and we saw them uh they blew that playoff series to the red sox they're up two nothing and then ended up losing and you kind of get a taste of like the aura of like playoff games at Playoff games at Fenway and the old Yankee Stadium are like oh nothing else. Oh my like god! Oh my god! Like those were there was like I the old Yankee Stadium was eerie with with the when you get like the big games there there was like a, a vibe that like nothing was safe. Like I love I love that stadium. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like, you're it, right. It did feel like there were ghosts there. 
like yeah. people talk about that, it felt like 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 the ghost of Babe Ruth is there pulling like for for somebody to boot a ball. Mm-hmm. It's all right, man. It's it's the house that Ruth built. So exactly like mm-hmm. it was. And um, and so that fall, uh, my dad's first year there. We uh, I, I was in it was my my first semester in college, and and my dad had actually not. Uh, he, I think he went to the playoffs as a player, like one of his, one of his first years, and then and then with the A's, but hadn't uh, hadn't been a ton. So they let me. My parents said, uh, you know, you never know. So when you're going to get to experience this, so they, they were pretty liberal, letting me uh, take some time off of school and you can catch a couple games here and there. Mm-hmm. And so I went to got to go to a couple of those series, and then uh, ended up missing a little bit too much time once it once it went deep the. Uh, I think I, in one case I went, I went to had like an econ midterm. And then the next time I went to class, like they were talking about the next one, uh, the next one being the next week after that. And, and I realized at that time I'd probably, probably better attend a few more classes. <laughs> but, but the, uh, the Red Sox fans, like uh, that was an introduction to like, that was something else. That was like right when uh, Facebook was coming out and it, it, Penn was one of the first schools that had it. And like, I was getting like some weird shit on there from from random people. Like it, it, it was a it was a little much at times. Nick, what's it like? What's it like being in a major league locker room and without giving away any classified information that we're not supposed to know about? But like, is are certain organizations different? Like, are certain ones better? And do they treat players better? You know, like what's it like being in a locker room? Because that's like. I feel like that's a dream of mine to like experience it, but what what, what would it, what is it like to be in the middle of all that? I think it's changed a lot over the years, in that, and I think there's a couple factors there. I think for for one, the like each team's going to have its own personality, and that that's like per, that's a good thing. I think uh, so that you're going to see some differences there. I think I think that changes that probably has like within the confines of the locker room itself probably has more to do with the the players themselves than, than the organization. I think one of the, the things that has changed a lot is even just like the physical layout and, and architecture of a locker room has, can have like a big influence on like the way guys interact and the dynamic in there. And in the, in the old days you would see uh, what you kind of see in like minor league clubhouses now where it's a small room and, kind of small rectangle or square and everyone's uh kind of in pretty close proximity and there's not a lot of place to go and hide and you you sort of by default are are kind of in every right there with the with your teammates the in in the newer big league locker rooms kind of everybody's spread to the wind a bit there's a lot more space a lot more like lounge rooms food rooms etc and so guys uh guys will inevitably like like obviously like still see each other and hang out but there there's a it's a lot more comfortable which which is a good thing and and i think there's uh i i don't think that necessitates this idea that oh we're not gonna we're not gonna interact with our teammates or it's gonna drive a wedge between anybody i think i think there's other factors that contribute to that when when you do see that but there's uh you just don't see the close physical proximity in a force way that you that you used to we had spoken previously about and we're I guess we're gonna dial it back a little bit here because we are two Dominican guys hosting this podcast. 
and we did speak <laughs> about you you uh you living in uh in DR for a year while your while your father was managing Las Aguilas and we happen to be two aguiluchos over here we were big aguilas fans um what what was it like living in a foreign country uh, and of all countries the Dominican Republic uh, w- where baseball is religion um what was it like living there while your father was managing that team so we were there for uh for it was probably, I guess it would be like three, three or four months. Um, it, it was an awesome experience. Like it, 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 I, I loved, loved it um, from start to finish. It, it, it was kind of funny looking back on it. You don't realize like, like how, I mean, you, you're in the moment and you realize like how crazy like Dominicans are about baseball. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, that was not like back then. Like I know the, the league has changed a lot down there, but like it's still completely insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you, I, like you lose like three games in a row to to say or Estejito, like you were packing your shit because you might not be the manager anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's how that's how like how crazy it is. Yeah. And they, uh, so so you, it was funny that like our whole family is down there, but you're like you never really know if you're going to stay the whole season or not mm-hmm. because that's just like like managers down there they go through them like it's cool. But it was. Uh, it was an awesome, awesome experience. Um, I like Santiago is an unbelievable place. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up, uh, I, like we, we would do, like, I was ostensibly being homeschooled, but would, uh, mostly just go to the, go to the ballpark every day and, and spend time there and, and hopefully try to make up for it when, uh, when, when I got home with, uh, my, my mom did the best she could to uh, keep her rain on us, but she, she was really good about, like recognizing that this was like a, a once in a lifetime experience and trying to get the most out of it. So we, we saw a lot of the, the stuff, the stuff that there was to see in the country and, and like, like interacted with people and, and tried to like really appreciate the life experience that it was. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that because I, I mean, I fell in love with, with the country and the people. And, and I think that influenced a lot of the, the positions that I took later on. And like, I, I felt like, like very, like protective of of like the young like Dominican kids and the, the that like we're trying to make it in baseball. Um, I I felt like we had like like baseball as a whole and and myself being part of that like wanted to see baseball be a force for good in that country. So you have people that love it so much and and give so much to the game and and they're they're a major part of it. And so, what was it like when Las Aguilas won their the championship? That was the winter, the winter league. Uh, what was it like when they won the championship? So, uh, I think we were our family had gone home by that point, and, and my dad stayed in the DR so we could at least catch catch some of, of the school year. But um, I, it, it, was, it was pretty funny. And uh, when I was working with the Mets, our uh, our Latin American director is a guy named Rafael Landisoy, mm-hmm. who's uh, I really, uh, I mean, the guy is awesome. He, he is, uh, like very grandfatherly figure and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> like a guy that you really, you really don't like, but in a, in a good way. And that like, you don't want to let him down. And the, and like the players like love him and fear him. Um, like awesome guy. And like kind of a legend in the, in Dominican baseball circles. And, uh, Rafi was managing, uh, a playoff game against my dad and had uh, Pedro on the hill for him, and they ended up uh, 
beating Pedro that year in the playoffs. It was uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Wow. especially like hearing it from uh, from Landisloy, which was which was interesting. Was this prior to Pedro uh, being called up to the Bigs to play for Montreal? Um, you know what? I don't know. I think he was probably. I'm guessing he was probably already in the big leagues. Okay. Um, because I think that I think that was might have been the last time he he pitched that deep okay. into winter ball too. Okay, because I mean, guys used to go and play. To me, it seemed like regularly. Like when I was a kid, I felt like you would see Tony Pena play in in uh, for Las Aguilas and. There was a point where Manny Ramirez played and and stuff like that, and I feel like I don't you, you don't see to... that as you don't see that as often anymore. Yeah, when my dad was there, they had uh, it was T- Tony Pena was there. Yeah. The other, uh, uh, I think it was see, Alberto Castillo, maybe mm-hmm. was Alberto the other Castillo. catcher who then uh, who worked with the I worked with him with the Mets. He, he was down at the academy down there mm-hmm. as a catching instructor. Um, Miggy was he didn't play much he was on the roster but he he was really young and so mm-hmm. he was uh ostensibly 18 which probably many was like 23 and I forget the, how how many years he later added but that was uh but he was like a young kid Felix mm-hmm. Fermin um Louis Alisea mm-hmm. there were um there were some uh big time players that uh that played in, and you saw that throughout the league. Um, it was, and now it's it's changed. I think guys are more. I, I think a lot of it has to do with the the organizations themselves. There's a, mm-hmm. a lot of hesitancy to, to have guys that you're paying that much money to go go yeah. play play you, ball down there. Yeah, yeah, you see younger guys or guys that maybe you know mm-hmm. they've made it to the bigs, but they're not as you know like like Astudillo played for. I think it was is he Puerto Rican or Venezuela? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Um, but you don't see you. You'll never see a, a superstar Dominican player like a Luis Severino, let's say, go down and play for the winter leagues anymore. That's just, just not going to happen anymore. No, especially especially not the pitchers, and increasingly less so the position players. Like there's yeah. some exceptions. Um, sometimes the guy gets hurt, and you want him to get an extra extra couple abs. Yeah, but you, you just don't see it, and it's uh, I, I think it's a shame because I do think there's a lot of benefit. I understand why it happens, but I think I think guys get a lot out of out of playing there, and I think the I think the Americans get a ton out of it as well. I mean, that mm-hmm. is those are like there's there's no Triple A stadium that compares to fans getting up in your grill like like being an opposing player in, in Santiago. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> and we've talked like, about that like before. That is, a, that is, I think that's healthy. Uh, yeah, and we've talked about that before, and I kind of wish that American baseball would adopt that kind of passion for the game. Instead yeah. of sitting back with a beer and popcorn and a hot dog and this, this, and that, those fans are involved. I mean, they're they're dancing, they're singing, they're making noise, they're, you know, all that stuff. I mean, I don't know if you, uh, my dad went down. I, I didn't have a chance to go down for this. But my dad went down to Miami to watch DR in the WBC, and he says that he's never heard a stadium. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, he said he's never heard a stadium like that before. Like the, he said, the, the stadium was shaking; it was insane, and I think that's good. That's good for baseball. We should we should try to adopt some of those things up here. Yeah, that stadium has never been like that before. Nobody goes no. to those to Miami games. <laughs> no, no. Well, I, I think that's like a crazy like juxtaposition of it is for that to happen. And I mean, just look at the contrast between that stadium, the way it was rocking then, and and the way it is now. Even for I mean, not that they 
had too many meaningful games in that stadium, but like it's certainly not going to resemble the same dynamic, even even if they're selling be- selling tickets better. Yeah, and I think we should like certainly embrace that. And I don't think you can I don't think you can force that. And I think it's gonna gonna take on different different dynamics in different places. But I, I think if you you kind of let it happen authentically, that's uh, that's something to celebrate. And I think I think uh, it really just like embrace the shit out of that and let let uh, let it take on a life of its own. Yeah, we so in editing for Call to the Pen, we have a writer. I'm not sure if he's of Korean descent, um, <laughs> but he he wrote a piece on the KBL and uh, the Korean Baseball League and how at one point it was completely like it seemed like the sport was just going to die out in in Korea baseball, and uh, they decided to bring back they they brought in like cheerleaders and and men who would uh, rile up the crowd and stuff and start chants and. The KBL is bigger than it's ever been before. It's like the biggest sport in Korea right now. And I, I know that baseball fans are, are a little... T- I mean, I'm a baseball fan, but some of them are very snobby and stuck in their old ways. If they see a cheerleader or something standing on top of the dugout trying to start the, the you know start up a channel or whatever, some people are going to roll their eyes. But maybe the next generation will embrace something like that. And you can get you know the crowd actually involved in the game. You know what I mean? That's I think that's what we need. It almost seems like going to a baseball game is like going to see a movie. You know what I mean? Like you just sit there and watch and, you know, I think more involvement needs to be had. Yeah. Just yeah. Me. And I think that's, uh, I think that's just like what you're talking about is like one manifestation of a, like a bigger issue. And like the people there are, I, I think there's like, some of that is going to be, there's going to be like cultural differences in different places of the way, the way people are, are like, like watch sports and, and engage with, uh, with how, how they cheer and boo. And, and that's going to be different in different places. And, and that's awesome. And like, that's not going to be the same in, in every American city either. And that, that's great. Like that, like those differences are, are what makes each place unique. But I think the other difference that, that if, that I would want to dig into more than that I think is important is is there I, I genuinely believe that there is a real difference in the passion for the sport mm-hmm. and that's something that is uh that that I think matters and I think you you want it's not that like plenty of uh there's different ways to express that outside of outside of uh physically the way people cheer at a game and I think that's the kind of it might be like as you mentioned earlier like somebody might be passionate enough about baseball that they want to take clips and cut them up and analyze pitching mechanics or mm-hmm. a, a guy swing or share highlights in a certain way. Like, awesome. That's like fuel that fire. Don't, don't extinguish it. Um, his name is, I want to give him credit. His name is Eon Lee. You can find his writing on writing on call to the pen. The piece is called embracing how KBO, not KBL, my bad. Embracing how KBO became popular, uh, became popular. Oh, I'm sorry. Embracing how KBO became popular and could fix baseball. Um, okay, so let's move on and talk a little bit about your time in the Marines. How did I know that you got drafted? Well, according to some things that I, you know, my research, it looks like you were drafted by the Boston Red Sox. It doesn't look like you played in any minor league games, though. Um, why did you? You know, why didn't that pan out? That's question number one. And question number two, how did you end up in uh, in the in the Marines? 
so so getting drafted was out of uh out of high school and and i, I was half decent as a high school player i i was certainly not good enough to be skipping skipping college and i had a pretty pretty good opportunity at penn and that was uh like i i was smart enough to be realistic about it and understand that there was a probably wasn't going to get drafted if uh, if my dad was the manager there and and uh I, I was actually it was pretty funny i was at at lunch uh with a couple friends when it when it happened and i i got a call from from uh theo epstein who my friend saw it was like the coolest thing ever that uh that theo was calling and uh and at that time i think he was like 29 years old or something like that and so Theo was, was a lot closer to, he's about probably closer to, to me in age than my dad. And Theo, Theo was pretty, pretty funny about it on the phone is he, he said, I'm calling to let you know, we drafted you and they'll send a contract out, but you better not sign it. Like you're <laughs> like, you know, we're not actually signing you. <laughs> it, it was pretty funny. And then, so, so then how did you end up in the Marines? Was it, did you finish college and then, and then enlist or was this during, was there an interruption somewhere in between? No, I had, uh, I had, it was, it was after I graduated from, uh, from Penn and, and my freshman year at Penn, I, I, I was really bothered by the fact that, uh, one of my, one of my buddies I played travel baseball with, and he, he really, it was, it's kind of funny looking back, like how these things affect you. Cause like he wasn't, it wasn't like we were like all that close to friends. Mm-hmm. He was uh, a Marine. He had enlisted in the, in the Marines after high school. And I think was in Iraq at the time. And it really bothered me. Like it, it, uh, it would keep me up at night sometimes. And I like to the point of like, it, like I would, it, it upset me that like I was, I was at school and my, biggest concern like i'm sitting there having like going to baseball practice like periodically going to classes playing quite a bit of online poker mm-hmm. and this dude's fighting a war like like i felt like i i like, like it wasn't fair and like i wasn't doing my part and i went to talk to a recruiter and and i didn't know shit about the military like i had no idea what was going on mm-hmm. and probably could not have even named like all the branches of it or anything and didn't know the like that there were officers and enlisted and the recruiters were certainly not going to fill you in on that they they were very much in the business of getting you to to put pen to paper at that point yeah. and uh so it took, took they have like a standardized test called the asvab which is it's basically like the sat for the military right and so it took that and my friends i like i i had my my intention was just i i knew my parents would be pissed so i was just gonna going to sign up and tell them after the fact. And they, my friends had a bit of an intervention and I think one of them actually told my mom. So then, uh, the, the plan was they talked me down and and convinced me to at least finish school. And and if I still had that, that urge and desire to do it, to, to do it afterwards. And, and that, um, that it it was still there. Um, I, I did an internship, in, in DC at a think tank after my junior year and, and worked with a guy who had, who had gone to Penn and was an army ranger. And he, uh, that was my first real like up close exposure to a guy that had, uh, that had served and, and got to talk to him about that a lot. His, his name's Andrew Exum and, and Andrew was uh, really influential in that decision. And, and we, we, 
when we talked about it, he said, if like the things that, that are appealing to you about it, like if you want to be in, in the thick of it, like actually like leading Marine, like leading people on the ground, like the Marine Corps is probably the, the best route to go for that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, so that's what I ended up doing. Wow. Did your friend decide to enlist after nine 11? I'm assuming it seems like it was around that time. <laughs> Um, it was a, a couple years after, like okay. not not long, but um, I, I, I was a sophomore after that when that happened, mm-hmm. and it definitely uh, it, it definitely stuck with me. And I think the, I, I think most of the guys, that, like even so, like the guys that that I served with, like around my age, they were they were had a few years at least for the most part between the decision to sign up and, and nine eleven And, uh, and I think it's, I think some of that is like, you can't control what age you're at. Then like you hear the stories, like there's certain guys like when, went in the next day. Um, and I think other ones that like, like for me, it, it, it stuck with me and it, like, I, I can't say that it was like the only reason, but I, I'm pretty confident that if that didn't happen, it wouldn't even have been on the radar. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what that must must have been like. And, uh, you know, I've told you this before, but, you know, I'll say it again. Thank you for your service. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have some friends that, that have enlisted and served. A cousin of mine served. And you guys, man, I, I don't even know. I mean, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys. So, yeah, thanks for that. Thank you. <laughs> um Yep. So okay, so all right, so now you you enlist in the in the Marines. How many years did you serve there? So I went to uh, OCS, which is Officer Candidate School after college, which is it's like the like a tr- some people say it's like the the officers version of boot camp. I think that's uh, that, it, there's not quite the truth. There's some some of that there, but it's it's kind of like the screening element. It's like you're trying out to be an officer, and if you pass and complete it you you commission and, and you're second lieutenant at that point and if not you go home kind of no harm no foul mm. and so uh i did that then uh went to uh the marine corps has an has a program which is it, it is by no means fun but it is very beneficial in mm. that it's a six-month program called the the or a little less than that called the basic school where uh every officer no matter what job you're going to do you you go through the same six months so it kind of gives, gives everyone a foundational level of of being on the same page and and kind of the, marine, the, the entire ethos of the marine corps is built around optimizing for the the young riflemen enlisted riflemen mm-hmm. and the uh that gives it a, a everybody has that orientation coming out of there which is which is awesome and so at that point, you, you basically compete for the specific jobs that you want to do. And, and kind of everyone has this idea that, the, like, you see the Marine Corps commercials and, and that everyone's kind of on the front, like, duking it out. And especially with officers, that, that is by no means the case. And the vast majority of jobs are actually not, not in combat arms. Hmm. And so I, I, I did pretty well there and got lucky. Um, my mom was hilarious about it. She was, she was pissed trying to talk me into being like an accountant or like mm. administrative type job. She's like, Oh, you, you majored in business in school. You'd be a great like financial op- type officer. And like mom, nobody watches these, these commercials and 
<laughs> and wants to be wants to do do, do their paperwork. That's just like not how it goes. And uh, I got pretty lucky in that I got to do. Uh, I wanted to be a, a scout sniper platoon commander, and um, so I ended up going to infantry officer course and an intelligence course and, and a sniper employment course. And it was uh, it, it was pretty cool. I was I was really fortunate with how it worked out. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget, Nick Francona Part 2 will come out next Thursday. So look out for that. In Part 2 of that interview, we're going to discuss his time with the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Mets, some shady international signing practices that he was privy to, and more. So thanks again for listening. Thanks, Nick Francona, for coming on the show. Peace.